Hello, my name is Clayton, and welcome to another episode of the Watch Dank Podcast. I'm a professional dog runner and watch enthusiast talking to his pals about dogs and watches. How's everybody doing? Thank you so much for joining me. You know I appreciate it. And I am so honored to have him back for a second time. You know him from the Pete McConville YouTube channel, formerly Not So Obvious Watches. And also he has a brand new podcast, Hot Take Time, with his local watch friend John there in Melbourne, Australia. Pete McConville, thank you so much for finally coming back to the podcast. I appreciate it. How are you? I am great. The, the way you put that made it sound like I've been avoiding ducking <laughs> even to finally come back to the podcast. <laughs> no, we've we've been trying for a long time and it's yeah. you know not only, you know, you're 14 hours ahead of me, so it's really tricky and then my weekends have been like the last 5 we've either been gone or have had company here so no i don't put the onus on you it's totally me <laughs> no 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 it's just like it just the way it came across how are you today uh, i'm doing well i told you uh earlier it was a really busy uh day a lot of dog runs and taking my new beagle for hikes and like forty-one thousand steps 22 miles or whatever it is so i've been looking forward to this conversation though that kind of got me through and uh, it was like 85 degrees fahrenheit today also which is uh it's not even Mother's Day yet, and it felt like a late July summer day. It's really weird. Yeah, so we're, as you say, we're, we're at 14 hours. It's almost exactly like half a day out, and we are obviously a full season out. Yeah. So we were doing the opposite. Today, when I took the dog down the beach, it was like 7 degrees oh, Celsius. <laughs> so I don't know what that works out to for you guys, but... Thankfully, um, the plastic bag coats that that German short hair pointers have, she didn't seem to care. She's still in the water and bouncing around and getting me absolutely drenched (laughs) when she comes out. So what is it now? It's like late autumn, early winter for you? Uh, Yeah. So it'd be, I think we go into, you know what? I don't pay that much attention. (laughs) I think our winter starts in June. Okay. So yeah, it's right on the end. Gotcha. Gotcha. Well, I know we were talking a little bit off air, but uh, you know, you've been doing the YouTube thing for a few years now, and you've entered the uh, wide world of podcasting. How have you found it versus YouTube? Harder, easier? You're doing it with a friend, which is often energizing. Yeah. So what's that been like? Uh, okay. So doing the podcast after the YouTube is a lot, I think it prepares you for a lot of the technology yeah. So a lot of, like, I'd already got all the sound stuff sorted. I already knew how to edit. Um, there were some things that that tripped me up. Um, so in the first case, I wasn't used to, I didn't realize I'd be recording in stereo. And then that, that, that throws some people out. You know, you hear one voice in one ear and one voice in the other. Yeah. So there was some going through on, do I do the conversion to mono? And then I decided to do that. But then I switched. Um, software and then that soft the new software doesn't have a nice easy compressed stereo to mono function so it was just like it's just being lots of that little stuff one of the big things i'd find and maybe this is just in my head because i know full well watching a lot i'm about to slag off a whole bunch of youtubers here oh that's i know there's a lot of youtubers that don't do any research and just talk off talk rubbish off the top of their head i can't do that if i'm scripting it I have to be right. I have to do the research. Yeah. I have to know what I'm talking about. Um, and so doing videos is quite an involved process. Yeah. But for some reason, when you're doing 
either streaming, which is a you know YouTube streaming, which is very close to doing a podcast or doing a podcast, it does feel a lot more comfortable just doing that off the top, you know, these sort of conversational, no one expects you to have done your research first. Yeah. So it is, it's a nice break. Um, and I can see why so many YouTubers are actually moving into doing so much more streaming or um, either in groups or, or, or on their own, because it's, it is a lot easier mentally um, and, and your pay bang for buck, especially on YouTube is so right. much higher. Right. Um, you, you, Doing a scripted video, you do all this work that no one ever sees, results in an eight-minute video, um, and you might get some monetization for that. But do a stream, and you just you walk in, totally off the top of your head, yarn on for an hour, um, you get all these super chats yep. that just people <laughs> throwing you money. It's, it's like money for jam. I can see why people do it. Like- and they just talk rubbish. <laughs> Like I watched a, a little bit of Oshino O'Malley's today. I'm not sure if, if you know him from the, uh, yep. and he was just like telling a story about, I don't know, the time he went to jail and everything. And there's like 600 people in the room and just like super chats galore. And it's just like, sometimes I have to turn it off. I'm like, what am I even listening to? What, why am I doing this? <laughs> well, actually that's the bizarre thing. I don't understand why people watch them. I don't, Yeah, but I can understand why people do them. So it's a weird thing. Yeah, right. But so yeah, I found the switch over to podcasting fun. It's it's I, I I had all the technology behind me. I knew what I was doing there. And then it's just been this weight off my shoulders. It's just so much more conversational and casual. And there's someone right. else that you're in their room in there with. Yeah. Um I think you do the odd show all by yourself. That <laughs> must that must be tough. Um Yeah, it it is uh, and it isn't. Like, I feel I'm a little better. Like, I'm sure when you edit yourself, you'll notice, like, when you stumble over words, I do that more with a guest on than by myself. But, like, my intro, I will sometimes mess it up and do it, like, five different times when I'm by myself, as opposed to kind of nailing it when guests are on for some reason. (laughs) Yeah. One of the things that saves me is I'm a really lazy editor. Okay. There's lots of ums and ahs and yeah. little gaps. I just leave them in. <laughs> I'm way Some more lenient with of... myself, but I used to be really hard on myself about that. Yeah. So I, like I said, and particularly if you've got like two people and then you're trying to keep the tracks aligned, no, it just got too hard. Um, so. We're getting inside baseball here, but do you have the, uh, I noticed you use a Rode mic for your uh, some of your videos. Do you have the Rodecaster Pro? Uh, no, that'll probably be where I go next. Yeah. At the moment, where have I got? I'm just using a, a Zoom okay. recorder thingy. Um, I might end up going to like a, a, a Rodecaster or something. It's a good um, investment because it'll actually put like our conversation will be in one track. So, uh, so okay. much easier to edit. Yeah. Yeah, so that'll probably be next thing down the line. Yeah, yeah, it's a it's a worthwhile thing. But anyway, no one wants to hear this techie, <laughs> dorky podcast stuff. Well, I have really enjoyed listening to you in podcast form. I think you and John have a great, uh, you know, you can tell your friends and the, the conversation flow is so much easier and better when you are talking with a friend about obviously something you're both passionate about. So how lucky you are to have a guy like that who lives by you that you can come over and show each other watches and all that. It's super fun. 
Yeah, absolutely. It, um, it was just sheer luck. We were both in the same sort of watch group. And then I think he might have recognized like the back of a photo that I'd put up on Instagram, that it was like at his local cafe as well. Next thing you know, we reached out, we got in contact. Then COVID came and you're not allowed to go outside more than 5Ks, but we were both inside the um, our little bubble zones. So yeah, it's been it's been great ha- having a having a friend who um, also buys very different watches yes. than me. So we get to we get to really see totally different ways of doing this hobby, which I think is one of the secrets to the one of the things I like about our podcast is that we come at this hobby through such wildly different approaches. But uh, yeah, I, I no, really thank like you very it. much. Yeah, I really I really enjoy it. I always uh, look forward to. Uh, Sometimes it's Friday, sometimes it's Saturday. I always look for it, and I always listen to it uh, right when it drops. So I have one local friend also named John. We have great conversations about watches and meet up regularly, but he wouldn't be on a podcast if I paid him a million dollars. Completely just not into it. So unfortunately, I'd love to have him on, but yeah, he wouldn't do it. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, that is very lucky. Trying to find someone who, A, you know is into watches, B, is close by, C, wants to be involved. Actually, it was John who was sort of saying to me, you know, wouldn't it be good if we did this sort of thing? Um, And so, yeah, that was uh, the trifecta. I was so super lucky with that. All right. Well, before we get into a really fun topic, I think, why don't we do a wristwatch check? You do them on your uh, podcast. I know you're not big into them on your videos, but you do them on the podcast. So uh, why don't you have the honors? What are you wearing this morning? For uh, well, today I have taken it off because it's easier with streams and things. But today I am wearing my Jajula Kult Polaris oh, with nice. the green enamel dial. Beautiful. Um, that is one of my very latest buys i think i haven't bought a lot of watches lately so i bought that back late last year um absolutely love it to pieces so you're doing a year of quartz this year right that's i'm cool. trying <laughs> to do a year of quartz which is probably why oh actually no i did buy a grand seiko a little while yeah ago, so which i forgot about um so yeah i'm trying to it's a combination of doing something different forcing myself to do something a bit different and secondly they're a little cheaper. (laughs) Right. So you can kind of save a little bit of money by doing a year of quartz. Yeah, because that Polaris is, uh, what are the, those retail for like 9,000 US, I think, right? Yeah. So there, it's an interesting story. Um, So I went in, I saw that. So I'll talk in Australian dollars, which is about two thirds of a US dollar. So just divide by, divide by three, multiply by two, you'll get the price. Okay. Okay. so when I first saw it, it was 13,800 Australian. Um, and then uh, the woman told me that if you want to put down a deposit and order it, that might be a good idea because there's at least one price rise coming. Um, and if you put down a deposit and order now, you are locked into that price. Over the seven months it took for the watch to be um, delivered, uh, there were two price rises, wow. um, and it went from thirteen thousand eight hundred to sixteen thousand three hundred or something. Um, so yeah, it's—I'm uh, not sure what the numbers are. It'd be about a twenty percent price increase over a six-month period, seven-month wow. period. And then when they, when I get the call and they say Pete, it's available to come in and pick up, I'm picking it up at the old price. Well, that's really cool. That's neat of her to do that. That's nice. 
Wow. Yeah. So apparently that's just the way JLC w- work. Um, they don't they don't do this kind of you know get into the anti Rolex thing. They don't do this kind of Rolex mystery waiting list. Yeah. It's really simple. You walk in if you want the watch, and they can go particularly through a boutique. They can go directly to the um, production cycle. They can see if there are slots available. If there are, you put your deposit down, you go on that slot. They can tell you within a couple of weeks when your watch is going to come. Um, then they give you a call about two weeks out and say your watch is on its way. So there's none of this last-minute scramble of, have I got the 13 grand I right. need to buy this? You know, everything's very orderly. Everything's very easy. Um, it's great. It's it's how wait-listed watches should be done. Yep. Absolutely. That's really, that's really cool. Cause, uh, one, one of my authorized dealers, the one I got the air King through actually, they, uh, they sell JLC. So w- were those yeah. price increases global or was that just an Australia, Australian thing? I'm pretty sure it was global. Okay. Um, Richemont's fa- infamous at the moment. So yeah. they're, they're upping the prices of all their watches. So whether the numbers line up with what was happening elsewhere, I'm not sure, but that there were up to, up that there were price increases, I'm pretty certain happened everywhere. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, a reverso is something I, I don't know. I, I need to try them on. I I've seen them. I've never tried one on because I think they might wear a little bigger than I think, but I have to just find the right one. Cause with yeah. that, with that case shape, I think they'll probably wear a little bigger than I'm thinking. <laughs> it's hard to say. And there's like two or three different case sizes yep. too. They're a little bit like a Cartier. So right. you've got, you got options. The worst case could be that you find yourself loving the look of one but hating the way it wears. Yeah. Loving the way that another one wears but hating the way it looks. So the large Santos I had, I thought it looked great at the moment. Gradually I began to feel like it was a little too big on me. It, it, that's also yeah. weird where you you kind of like the look initially and then it wasn't through what anyone else said or anything. I just kept looking down like, ah, I should have went with the medium. <laughs> It's it's funny you say that. It's um, it's I'm in an odd odd position. You ask what I'm wearing, and today it's the Polaris. But on the other wrist, twenty four seven, I'm wearing my Garmin. Oh yeah, um, same here. And so yeah, so <laughs> there you go. I got mine on. Yeah. Um, and that's a that's a forty five or forty six, and that just makes everything else look small. Right. <laughs> so, yeah. So it's like um, it's. It's an interesting thing. I was at a I was at a, meet, a conference. I mean, I've made this. I think I've said this before. I'm in the Air Force. I was yeah. in a meeting the other day with about forty like senior aircrew type guys, and it was a, it was interesting to do the watch spotting, and a lot of Apple watches. They were all ultras. Um, a lot of Garmin's, but they're all the big like the Marks and the Epics. And there were five Breitling Aerospaces. It was the only kind of watch collector's watch that there was a lot of. But what was interesting is in isolation, in the watch community, people would say those Breitlings are really big. But in a world where everyone's wearing like Apple Watch Ultras and and Garmin Epics, it's actually the smallest watch anyone was wearing in the room. Right. Which Garmin do you have? Um, I've got the Forerunner 955. Okay. So I just went up from the Fenix. 
Yeah, I had uh, I had a Phoenix Seven that kind of it died on me last year. I got the new Seven Sapphire Solar. It died before the return window was up, so I actually returned it, and then I oh, just really? stayed away from it for a while. And now I have the new uh, Instinct Two X Solar, which I'm loving. Yeah, so I've got the nine five five Solar, which mm. again I love. This it solves the single biggest problem of the smartwatch. You know, I I recharge this. It takes about an hour to recharge. Yep. Um, and I throw it on the cord once every week, perhaps. Yeah. Um, and it's never got below about thirty percent. It's such a weird concept to wear a smartish type watch and see the battery go up while you're wearing it instead of down. <laughs> it's really cool. Right. The solar works like way better than a G-Shock too. Uh, yeah. yeah. It, it really works. Uh, if you get, I think it's like uh, on this, it's like 90K lux hours, whatever that means. But if you get that number, <laughs> I noticed the bat- it'll go up a day. So it was yeah. like 26 days battery left earlier and now it's 27. So pretty cool. I am yeah. wearing. So what the, are you wearing uh, today? I'm wearing the uh, Moser Endeavor uh, Center Seconds Concept Dial, completely blank. Uh, there's a shot of the the movement too. I don't know if you can see it there. Uh, yeah, that, it's been a been a fun watch to wear. I'm I'm loving it. That is a gorgeous watch. As as you know, that came up on yeah. our podcast <laughs> where we were talking about you know what the effect is when you downsize so much, but not only that, downsize to such a high-level watch, are you finding that's affecting how you look at the next watch? Or are you able to say, you know what, this is a really high-end watch, but my next one doesn't doesn't have to be at all? The latter, yeah. Oh, yeah. well, you are very lucky. <laughs> <laughs> the latter. Um, now, but it does, it does make me question. So now I just have a Rolex and a Moser. So I, I really want to do an episode, maybe like a couple months out uh, after owning both and like just compare what it's like to, because they're both good, but they're both different. But no, I, it, it makes me want to uh, explore, if anything, it makes me want to explore independent brands a little bit more and go off the beaten path with, you know, I'm on the list for that titanium yacht master and I've, I've contemplated just taking my name off. And but, but that's probably like years out anyway. So that's just like a set it and forget it thing. If I ever get that call, it's going to be way, way off. So no, it's not necessarily going into like super expensive independence either, but maybe just like RGM or maybe something just even in the few thousand dollar range. Yeah. I'm going through a similar phase. I'm spending a lot of time looking at what I call the accessible indies. Yes. So when people talk about indies, they tend to go like Fernand Bertoud and F.B. Jean and all these insanely expensive, you know, Great brands if you're a Russian oligarch, but the normal people <laughs> right. aren't really going to work. And so what I did was I found this sort of little cohort of people like Trilobe and Garrick and Fears. So people, there's a bunch of Germans, like the Benzingers and those guys, mm-hmm. um, who do, they're, they're independent, they're small, artisanal, they're the, the owner of the brand is often almost always involved in the design and the manufacture of the watches. But at the same time, they're not ferociously expensive. Um, the kind of what I call an accessible indie is an indie that's priced at about the same as a Rolex. Yeah, right. At retail. So if you were thinking, you know, I'm, I'm thinking I might buy, uh, 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 if you're thinking, you know, a Rolex is 
in my wheelhouse. I could afford that if I could save up. Well, then at the same time, you could be thinking about a Satori Billard or a Haraj or a, um, oh, what's the other one? Kadoki, those sorts of guys. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of my, where I'm, I'm spending a lot of time looking at the moment. Yeah, same here. That's what's getting me really excited right now. And like, you know, po- I posted this Moser on Instagram the other day, uh, two days ago, and the CEO of Moser liked the picture just because I, I, you know, I hashtag Moser. I didn't tag him or anything. I just put yeah. like hashtag Moser. Uh, that's really cool. You feel like a connection. And I didn't even buy it brand new. I bought it pre-owned. So um yeah, it was, and it was, it's a grail watch, but I got it for a really good price. So kind of like bargain grail shopped, if you will. <laughs> got it like 10K off of retail, which is uh, pretty remarkable. It's not good news for the people who bought it brand new, but excellent news for me. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. That's right. There's always good news for someone. Right. <laughs> I've, I've had my share of bad news when it comes to buying and selling watches. So this was a, this was a win. <laughs> Oh, excellent news. Um, all right. So let's get into our main topic. Uh, you know, we threw a couple different things around and then you came up with this idea. So why don't you set it up? We'll let you uh, do it justice here. Yeah. So one of the things I've found as a YouTuber and, and, and watching videos and it's watching people's videos, listening to podcasts, reading articles where we've both seen the same thing, you know, the the, the reviewer or whatever has seen a watch and seen some aspect of it and said, this is why this watch is great. And I've said in my head, no, that's why that watch is terrible and the work of Satan. Um, <laughs> and, and it occurs to me, you see this over and over again, what I call the great divides, these, these situations where we as watch enthusiasts don't disagree on the facts. We just disagree on how much or whether we value them at all or whether we think that this is important or not important. Um, and it's been something I've been sort of thinking about and, and thinking about doing a video on. But then when the, this podcast came up, I thought, you know what, it's a good thing just have a chat about. Yeah. So, so it's about what are those topics where two people within the watch community will come up with fundamentally different views you know someone will look at this and go that's good and someone will look at exactly the same thing and say that's terrible um and so yeah that's what i I thought we would do do you want me to kick off with the first one yeah go for it please yeah so the first one i would say the big divide in the community will be those people who see that history and story and narrative to a brand is all important it's a it's an integral part of the watch and then there's another group of people for whom history and narrative and story is nothing but marketing bunk. And if you buy into it, you are being conned. Um, they are, and, the, and these people place zero value on it. If anything, they almost see it as a negative. Um, you know, it's a trick to get you to spend more money. Right. And 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 so I find that's a really it's an interesting divide and it's one of these places where so people will say i don't understand why you're willing to spend so much money on that when you could get x for so much cheaper you know x is from some little mushroom brand you've never heard of and some people just will never buy that watch no matter how good it is because there's no story but they'll quite happily buy something that's maybe relatively pedestrian certainly not as well specced but from a brand that brings history and story 
Personally, I'm very much on the history story narrative is essential for me to buy a watch. Um, this is possibly going to be a bit of a theme for some of the things <laughs> I, I, I talk about later. But, um, yeah, I'm very much in that cate- that camp. Um, so there's a, there's a watch company at the moment, Harage, which is doing lots of really interesting stuff. And I, a lot of their watches look more like technology demonstrators than mm-hmm. actual watches. But um, I kind of really want to like them. But because they're so new and because there's no background and because there's no story, I'm finding it really hard to get any kind of emotional connection. And it's very difficult to spend 10 grand if you don't have some kind of emotional connection. So where do you fall on that? Uh, I'm with you. I, I also, I like a story. I like like Moser, for instance. I don't know if you ever saw, there's a video they did like four or five years ago. It's just like a minute long. And it's Edouard Malin, who's the uh, CEO. He is brought, um, you know, this advertising team comes to him with this campaign. And it's the idea of passing down your Moser to your son. And then he starts daydreaming about his son who is like hoarding with women, like drinking, doing all this stuff. And he's like, there's no way I'd ever give my son my Moser. He's like, come up with something better, guys. Like, that's what I I love that. Now, I think they're in danger of taking it a little too far, like with that QR code watch. Like, eh, let's be careful a little bit. Like, maybe maybe I could fall out of love with the brand. But even like like Seiko. So I love the history of Seiko. Not, you know, just from learning about it and like how integral they've been over the past, you know, many, many decades. But like the Grand Seiko playing on the seasons thing is a little like tiresome to me. So it's a fine line, I think. <laughs> and, and and this is going to be a constant through everything we say. You know, I've spoken about the Great Divide as in you're definitely on one side or definitely right. on, on the other. The truth is we do blur a little bit. But to be honest, I love the whole Seiko story and the seasons and things. Yeah. I and And recently – Edouard Melan had a bit of a had a bit of a gentle jab at Seiko for that in his like the salmon thing. Yes. And I'll be honest, as a result, Moser went down in my estimation <laughs> a little bit. <laughs> it's like, uh, so you're telling me you're a little bit of a solace automaton when mm-hmm. it comes to like designing your watches. Um, so I'm I'm all in for the story. I think Moser is in a in an interesting spot because a lot of their watches like this I got at a pretty hefty pre-owned discount. It was listed for more pre-owned and I watched it drop on Topper's website to the point where I felt like, okay, I can sell some things and pay very little out of pocket and actually make this happen. But I watched it for a little while. Um, but yeah, the, like many of their pieces do well, but then others, I think you can even get a discount new from. So it's interesting to see where they'll go. Like, will people get tired of the whole like cheese watch thing and the QR code and the Alp watch? <laughs> they are. Look, Moser is finding it's got its own story. Yeah. And its story is that it lives on the edge. Right. Um, and that's a great story. Yeah. But it's very easy to go over it. Yeah. And so in exactly the same way as, you know, I suppose – uh, you were saying you think that um, you know Grand Seiko probably pushes the whole seasons thing, like the you know this is the color of the snow in the spring yeah. out of this window, 
you know, under this tree when this particular squirrel was standing there. <laughs> right. You know, you feel like that's gone a little bit too far. And I, I totally get that. You know, I'm not there yet. I think Moser can go too far the other way. And in trying to be, you know, a little bit edgy, it can go too far and become kind of like the 18-year-old boy who's trying to be a bit of an edgelord and just, you know, totally. sort of just in, ends up embarrassing all the adults around them. Right. Um, and I think, yeah, both are actually pushing stories, just different ones. Yeah. I think Moser's probably close to doing that. We'll see like what their releases are in the next couple of years. And like, will serious collectors just feel like, eh, that's not really what I'm into. I'm going to find something else. We'll see. It'll be interesting to see that. It will be. So what about you? What's your next, where would you say the great divide? Well, is? I don't know if I had a, if I can count this as mine or if it's just like a throw on add on onto yours. I had original design versus specs. And that's kind of maybe where like the homage thing comes in a little bit. Like when I started yeah. collecting, I was watching like Jody, just one more watch, right? Who's pushing the AliExpress brands who will give you, you know, these watches with sapphire glass and all this and that for 50 bucks uh, from, you know, from AliExpress. And that's what I thought was very important. I was like, why would anyone buy a Seiko Hardlex? Boo, hiss. Uh, and you know, as I've learned more about Seiko and everything, I'm totally the other way. And it's interesting, like the people who are into, they'll call it homage when it's really an homage is like play, paying deference or honoring something. And there's no they're honor in that, right? There's no, yeah, right. Yeah. They're, they're knockoffs. How can they charge this much? Well, I'll tell you, they don't pay anything in research and development. They don't have a design team, uh, not to get like super political, but the people putting these watches together are not making a lot of money. So they're saving money there. And that's how they can give you a, you know, sub sub Mariner uh, adjacent watch for $50 with Sapphire glass. <laughs> Absolutely. No, I've, in fact, I had the same divide and like you, it's, it's, there's a number of different ways of describing it. Yeah. And I think in the intro, I said that I was going to. Mine have a bit of a barb in them, which <laughs> reflects where I fit. Yeah. So I would say that there's the two sides of the camp are there's the people who value the design and there's people who don't. Right. Um, right. And that's the, the, and when I say value, I'm always reminded of a, a something, an old, he was a professional photographer. Now it might've been his line. Maybe he was repeating it from somewhere else. I don't know, but he said something, he said, screw imitation payment is the sincerest form of flattery <laughs> and and that's really stuck with me you don't value something unless you're prepared to pay for it um so if you aren't prepared to pay the designer of a sub or if you're not prepared to pay the designer of a seiko tuner or a seiko skx for the work that they did in coming up with that design you're just going to you're just going to Take that design, use it for free because you can, and then get someone else to make their design. You don't value design. Right. So if you buy a Steinhardt or if you buy a Pagani or if you buy those designs, those knockoffs, you don't really value design because you're not prepared to pay for it. And so I, on the other hand, you've got those people who, me, um, I'll freely look at a Seiko and I'll agree with you that I wish it was spec'd better. I wish it had a better movement. Yeah, that Pagani has better materials, 
but I value the design effort. Yep. I value that there was some originality. Um, and I'm willing to pay the money for it. Because what a lot of people don't realize is when you buy that watch, you know, you were talking before about you don't you didn't have to buy a design team. And you're absolutely right. You know, yep. Steinhardt doesn't have to buy a des- doesn't have to pay a designer. But the other thing Steinhardt doesn't have to do is Steinhardt doesn't have to pay for the designs that didn't work. They they just get to see what someone else did. Right. They get to pick the the eyes out of it and say, we'll just take the good stuff. We don't have to bother with any of the stuff that didn't quite work. They also don't have to think about any of the future. They're not paying a designer right now to see what their next design is going to be. They're just going to they're just waiting for Seiko or whoever to finish their bit so they can nick that. Yep. Um, and then second, finally, they don't pay for any marketing. Someone else did all the work of making you want that Submariner, and then they just slid in at the end and said, "You know, I'll make one for I'll make one cheaper." Yeah, it, it reminds me of of like music and movies and pirating that stuff. So you and I would not go, and most hardworking, honest people, I think, would not go into the grocery store. No one's looking. Put a Snickers bar in your pocket and then walk out the door, right? But we have no problem, yeah. and myself included in this in the past for sure. You know, finding a website where I can get music for free or movies for free, or and I feel like it's kind of the same with uh, with the whole watches thing. Like we we don't really care that it was designed. Like uh, one of the more egregious is I think Jody just reviewed a Pagani design version of the Mars Moon Swatch. And it's, you know, it's, oh, it's so much better made for $90. Well, all the things you talked about, they don't have to pay for, and they also don't have to pay Swatch Store employees to put up with uh, crazed, uh, you know, flippers and watch geeks who are uh, storming the doors, right? So that one really, I I usually like, I'm not really for um, homage and copy watches, but it doesn't like upset me, but that one kind of did. And I also have a soft spot for the moon swatch. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. So. I suppose my argument is when I look at that, I would say that there is really poor value for money in some like because that watch should be $15. Right. It should cost the same as a Casio, um, you know, FW19 um, or something. It Because it's it's like 15 bucks worth of materials. That's yeah. what it should cost. It's cheapy. It's, and, and that they're charging, you know, $70 for it is outrageous. <laughs> Yeah. Well, the, the moon swatch is like, uh, what, two, uh, 280. And, uh, yeah, I mean, that's, that's debatable, but they're still selling millions of them. So. Oh yeah. I'm not, <laughs> don't get me wrong. I'm not going to say it's good value, but that, 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 that brings us down to a whole other problem <laughs> about how do you put a price on just something being cool? Yeah. Um, I mean, I can value. I can. I can give you a dollar price on a movement. I can give you a dollar price on a sapphire. I can give you a dollar price on, um, you know, what what finishing will cost you on a case. I can pretty much work that out. But if one watch is really cool and you want it, and another watch is just really pedestrian and you don't, what's that bucket of cool worth? Right. Um, and that's why if you do watch the it's, it's always funny to me watching like watch geeks say why would anyone spend this money on a moon swatch when you could go buy this boring pedestrian piece of garbage you know for more and it's a better watch it's better made better materials all of that's true yeah. 
but there's a reason no one's been buying it for the last 20 years because it's dull. Yep. Um, and so, yeah, trying to figure out what is cool worth. I don't know. No, you nailed it. That's a, that's really a great description of the moon swatch. And that it kind of goes back to the Seiko thing too. Sure. I can get a better spec. Uh, I think even some Orient divers are better spec than some of the prospects, uh, you know, turtles and samurais, but I don't want an Orient. I want a Seiko because they're cool. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly right. Um, all right. So I, I don't know. I guess that counts for my first one as well. I just I yeah. thought the I used to value specs over original design and I've done a complete 180 on that. But I think that is the divide. And those are the people who will defend the homage or copy watches. The people that really Sapphire Glass to me is getting as annoying as in-house movements. It's like. If I like the watch, I don't really care. It's more than, like many have said, a watch is more than the sum of its parts. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All right. What's your so next? My, my next one is big divide is those people who think the movement is somehow a special part of the watch versus those people who think the movement is just another watch part. Um, so you get... You know, the people who say, I think recently um, Brett, Brit, Brit Pierce did a video where she was talking about, you know, the movement is the soul of the watch. Mm-hmm. Um, Adrian Barker, when he does his videos, talks about, like, always starts with the movement. The movement kind of sets what would be a reasonable price for the rest of the watch. And then on the other hand, you've got the people who just go, well, it's just another part. As long as it's good enough. Um, you know, it can't be. Don't try and sell me a fifty thousand dollar watch with a you know twenty cent quartz crystal in it. Although Bulgari will probably do that. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, in general, but you know, like that's where pe- they, these people who just cannot see why you would ever buy a Bell and Ross or a Nublot or even um, uh, something like the recent uh, Breitling Super Oceans, which have. Um, Probably, I'm pretty sure it's a Solita SW200 base, which is messed with, in what in Australia is a $7,000 watch. People, there's those people who go, yeah, well, fair enough, but it's really cool. And the movement's, the movement's pedestrian, but the yeah. case is great. The design is great. Everything else is fantastic. But then you've got the other people who would say, full stop, I will never spend more than, insert number here, on you know, a, a, a watch with this. Or, you know, you'll show them a really high-end, really well-finished, really well-designed IWC, and they'll say, why would I buy that IWC when I can get the same movement in a $500 watch? Yeah. And I think that's, for me, that's a, a big divide between people. Yeah, um, totally. I'm definitely on the, a watch, is, a, a movement is just a watch part. Yeah, I'm with the Super Ocean. I actually defended it because I was in, we were in, I think it was like Random Rob's Discord at the time. That new Breitling Super Ocean design was quite divisive. <laughs> Most hated it. I found myself mm. loving it and defending it. But yeah, that was the thing. Like, I would never pay its $5,000 for a Selena. Like, it, that doesn't bother me. At a certain price point, if you're charged, like, the Ingenieur is an interesting. One, the one that just came out, twelve thousand US. Oh yeah. And that, then I may want an in-house movement. If you're charging me five figures, that might be like my threshold. But uh, the Super Ocean's cool. I don't care. It, it's the Breitling has every single watch is a chronometer, right? Every every single mm. watch is cost. So 
it's going to keep great time. It's going to be easy to get serviced if that happens down the road. So yeah, I'm I'm with you on that. Uh, you know, in-house is nice, but it also like Oris, like we've talked about before, uh, it made a $2,000 watch, a $4,000 watch. To me, it's not worth it. <laughs> yeah, and I do I do think it actually, what's actually really interesting is, you know, as you said, when the Super Ocean came out, there was a lot of criticism of that, of the choices around movements and everything. Um, and yet, according to everything that Breitling's saying outside and according to, if you try and see if they're turning up on the grey market, they're seeming to sell quite well. They're not turning up with big discounts anywhere. Joma Shop's got essentially none. Hmm. Um, um, according to Chrono24, the one I bought is now trading at over what I paid for it from the AD. So I'm, I'm, it's, it's selling okay. Conversely, people loved the Oris Caliber 400. They were praising it and everyone talking about it. You can buy those at massive discounts. Oh, gosh, yes. Um, That's the way to people, buy them. People do not. I think you're in this weird space where a lot of people are prepared to talk a big game about wanting that in-house movement, wanting that special movement, um, but they're not prepared to pay for it. Yeah. I like that Oris offers both still. That's, that's a good move, I think. I don't know if they'll I, eventually I, stop that or not. I, I put my business hat on. I would say they absolutely positively have to stop that. Right. Um, who's going to buy the more expensive watch? Yeah. Um, I think it's interesting that the ProPilot X only comes with the Caliber 400. Yeah. Um, and it's the one that gets the least amount of discounting. So I think it, it, there's a good example of why you don't want to be you don't want to be giving people a cheaper option. Have you handled those? They're really, they're really pretty cool. And I love the, you know, the seatbelt clasp and they just wear nicely. And of course they're titanium, but it's not a $4,700 watch. I, I just don't think it is. I was, I was shocked to um, find that there was a Kermit, that one of the new Kermits at my local RSAD oh. in Melbourne the day it was released. Oh, so wow. I got to try that one on as well. What's the color um, like in person? Um, it was, I, you know what? I can't tell you. And the reason I say that is because for whatever treatment they've got in the color, there's some pearlescence or something in the color. It varies wildly depending on the exterior light. Hmm. So, you know, if I looked at it in one part of the building, it had one kind of green. If I walked just two, took two steps sideways and the, the, the light around me changed. I moved into like a fluorescent area. Fundamentally different watch. It was really difficult to – I struggle to say what green it is. Um, in most interiors or in most of the shop interior, it came across as a really kind of high-vis yellowy green. Yeah. Um, which I didn't love. That's what so, it looks like. It looks neon. Yeah. Bit. Yeah. Yeah. Whereas if I moved into a different part of the building or it was a little bit darker and it didn't have all that fluoro light on it, so, you know, where the light's a little bit warmer, um, it went greener. A lot of the yellow went away. Yeah, that's a that's an interesting dial color. Hey, uh, they're, they're having fun, I guess. So, um, you know, people will call that gimmicky, but, you know, other brands can put a cartoon character on their watches and... You can't buy them and they're trading for well above retail. So who the hell knows? (laughs) 
Yes. Well, <laughs> hold that thought. That's oh, one of good. The ones I've got All right. <laughs> My next one is quartz, and not so much like quartz versus mechanical, but it's the the quartz haters who think every quartz movement high accuracy, whatever it might be, is the same as like a $50 Casio quartz movement, right? There's no difference. They would never, they don't want to learn the difference. They don't care enough to learn the difference. And they're just going to tell you, you see this a lot on Facebook when you see like a, you know, the, the uh, Breitling Endurance Pro, another watch Hmm. I find myself defending because I owned one for a bit and uh, I actually really loved it. But, um, you know, not only the material it's made with you're defending because a lot of people just think it's plastic uh well i guess it's a plastic polymer but again research and development went into that and everything so it doesn't cost them pennies to produce i'm sure but uh um yeah it's like people will not give even 9f a chance or other uh you know luxury gerard perigo has the casket there so it's yeah it's those people who are so thick-headed sometimes about quartz that they just think every even a 9f is no different than the uh you know 20 timex or the 50 casio absolutely i definitely see that divide yeah between and and like you say i think i think it is reasonable there are people that will take a reasonable a reason stand and yep. say you know the module inside a 15 casio fw is nothing flat right um but and 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 that's a that's a reasonable you know stand to take. Yes, but you're right. There are people who will say, and therefore, yeah, <laughs> um, no quartz movement is worth considering. And 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 I I I was going to say I love this guy to bits. I think he's fantastic. Um, but he he and I look at watches in a wildly different way. Speaking of people who put the movement first. Uh, Bill Sanders um, has an article, has a, a YouTube channel, Watch Art Sai, yep. um, which is really funny because I think there's no art in anything he covers. <laughs> but um, um, yeah, he goes so far as to really find it difficult to make a distinction between a, sil- a, a silicon component in a net, in a you know cheap as chips Casio movement. And the silicon escapement in a Ulysses Nadar freak, um, you know, a seventy or eighty thousand dollar watch. Wow! He just goes, well, it's all silicon. It's all cheating. It's all just using the, you know, and so he won't even look at, you know, silicon parts in an otherwise mechanical watch, um, which is really, I find, utterly bizarre, but. Um, it is really the, the far end of where that goes about people saying, if it turns up in a $15 watch, I'm not interested in it. Right. Ignoring the fact that you can buy $15 mechanical watches. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You could, yeah. I mean, gosh, look at the, uh, look at the watches we've been talking about on AliExpress 50, yeah, 50 bucks. I think, yeah, the cheapest, uh, probably can get a $15, uh, on Amazon. There's some real, real winners on there and they're mechanical watches. So yeah, who knows what you're getting and what movements. Well, in if those. You, yeah. You can still find people. There's not a lot, but you can still find people that have got those old, you know, Roscoff or the pin movements, unjeweled, unserviceable movements. They cost literally, you know, a handful of dollars to make. <laughs> um, and they do kick around somewhere. 
But um, yeah, one could argue if you can make that movement for you know, five bucks, why would you spend five hundred thousand dollars on a Grubel Forsy? Right, right. Yeah, there was there was a Facebook post that kind of got me thinking about this because yeah, the, a bunch of people were just kind of begging on courts, and one guy listed all of these reasons, and uh, I would say. 75% of them could also be applied to mechanical watches. He talked about magnetism and all these things. And even people actually said, like, you understand you're also describing mechanical watches, right? <laughs> it was just like, yeah. there's there's no logic into it. There, you know, there's real watchmaking that goes into, you know, like a 9F85. You know, there's a compensating for, like, my watch room in the summer can get a little warm. Uh, we finally put an air conditioner in, but in summer's past, uh, you know, my mechanical watches just wouldn't run so great, but that Grand Seiko 9F85 I had was still dead on because it, it, it adjusts for that. And that's really cool. That's like really real watchmaking that you're not going to get in your, you know, F91W quartz movement. So yeah, people just, yeah, like you said, they're just locked into that idea and they don't want to know <laughs> that, you know. Yeah, yeah, I think that's the main one. Yeah. All right, so go ahead. You're next. Okay, well, it's on the point of, I think you were mentioning the Snoopy watch. Yes. And what I would say is there are the, the next big divide for me, uh, there's people who see that it's okay for a watch to be fun, but only if it's cheap. So they'll take the idea of a cartoon character, Mickey Mouse or Snoopy or something on a cheap watch, but... At some point, you cross a, a, a dollar figure where you become luxury and we're not allowed to have fun anymore. We're not allowed to have cartoon characters. We're not allowed to, we're not allowed to have, um, oh, what's, they've got that like James Bond thing um, on the back of one of the Seamasters. Yeah, the new it, one, it, the 60th yeah, anniversary, yeah. Yeah. It's great in a cheap watch, but beyond a certain point, it's a gimmick and it's a child's toy and you're not allowed to have it. Um and, you know, and so they look at something like a Constantin Shaken um, and say, how can you spend $30,000, $40,000 on a watch with Dracula's face that's cross-eyed <laughs> half the time? Yeah. Um, and then there's the other side who go, no, that's the exact watch I'm happy to spend $40,000 on. Yeah. That's, you know, like if I'm going to be, if I'm spending that much money, I want sheer joy. I want pleasure. I want fun. Yep. I don't want to look at a $40,000 watch and be bored out of my skull. Um, and I think that's another great divide in the community. Yep, totally. I mean, that's why I went with this Moser. It doesn't have any branding on it. You can't really tell accurate time whatsoever. There's there's no minute track, no seconds track, nothing. Uh, it's fun. I find it fun. So, But the the Snoopy thing on on the Speedmaster, it doesn't really do it for me, but I would buy a Chaken in a, in a second. I think those are absolutely cool but it's just yeah, oh, yeah. i, I, I mean, love fun watches the snoopy thing doesn't necessarily do anything for me yeah i mean it's it's one thing to say and a little bit like quartz it's a, it's one thing to say that particular thing the snoopy yeah. doesn't do anything for me personally yeah and then i i don't mind i really like the latest one but i'm not going to spend the money they ask yeah um but yeah the the shaken things i absolutely love um yeah, I'm I'm all for saying, hey, look, once you get into silly money, the watches should be silly. Yes. Um, and why spend silly money on something really dull? Yeah, you're not you're not buying 
Yeah, like you can buy an F91W to tell you the time you have the money, you're looking to buy something. That's why I love wearing this watch because I wear like my serious, boring watches for functional things that I do. So when I get home, it's like, kick the shoes off. Let's have some fun. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, totally. No, that's, uh, yeah, I think a lot of jumping off of that, uh, a lot of brands get a free pass on some of that stuff. Like Oris is kind of getting dragged for putting Kermit on a watch, but yeah, like Omega gets celebrated for the Snoopy thing. Yeah. So it just, yeah, oh well. I, I, I've got no, I don't understand why people are having problems with the idea of a Muppet on a watch. <laughs> um, I, here's, here's the big thing. No one's telling you, you have to buy it. Right. <laughs> so if you don't like it, just don't buy it. Maybe the cringiest part of it was the, uh, I don't know if you saw it, we covered it on Watch Soup, uh, Ben Clymer interviewed Kermit the Frog. Did you see that? I'm I'm finding it harder and harder to watch Ben Clymer, so no, I didn't watch it. Uh, yeah, you should, uh, yeah, we, we, we covered it on, on Watch Soup. It was pretty, uh, there were a lot of, Sanjay argued because the Muppets, I don't know if you ever watched it, like the old Muppet show, there was a lot of bad jokes and puns, so there were puns and bad jokes galore in this interview. So it did make me laugh because I do like that. But, you know, at the same time, eh, you know, uh, I think uh, the time teller, I, wa- I I subscribe to a lot of these YouTube channels I wouldn't normally watch because watch soup. So just in case we have to cover something they say. And uh, I think Jory, the time teller said, you know, Ben Clymer is awkward interviewing human beings, let alone puppets. <laughs> so it was pretty yeah. awkward. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm, it's funny you should mention that. This is, this is interesting. I, I'm the same. I have like two YouTube, uh, how would you put it? I've got two YouTube personas. There's me, my channel, where I just have all the stuff I watch. So there's some watch stuff and there's a lot of photography stuff and triathlon stuff and also dog stuff and all sorts of stuff there. Yep. And then I have my watch one. So Pete McConville watches okay. channel. And Pete McConville Watch's channel has hundreds of channels, YouTube. It's it's pretty much only watches, and it's hundreds of YouTubers that I would never watch if it was up to me. <laughs> you know, it's like if it's not it, that's that's kind of like a business thing. Right. Um, I have to watch. I, I there's a lot of YouTubers that I don't. I don't, not only do I not get much out of what they do, I, I genuinely don't like the direction they go, but I feel like I've got to watch it because it's, I'm in the industry. I've got to be paying attention to what goes on. Yeah. Um, you, you'll, um, I, I'll be interested to hear what you think about that Kermit interview. It's a, it, yeah, the Kermit voice isn't, I think they got like the, you know, the guy they uh, bring out only for interviews like this that, you know, they don't really, you can use that, you can use Kermit, but you get like the D voice. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, As I I said, I'll probably, I should watch it at one point, but yeah, I've, I don't often agree with Jory, but I'm going to hear Ben Clymer as a person is tricky. (laughs) I'll say he's, he's awkward. Yeah. Um, And I, I, tend not to listen to him much anyway so him interviewing a muppet is going to be weird <laughs> yeah we had a, we had a good time uh, on watch soup with that one uh um all right so it's my turn i think um the idea that every collector to be a real collector you need a submariner and a speedmaster in your collection to call yourself i hear like oshin says that a lot like 
every collector worth his or her salt must have a Submariner, must have a Speedmaster, must have a this, must have a that. Uh, as someone who has owned both of those watches, so I guess I fell into that too. I bought the, I didn't necessarily buy them for that reason. You absolutely do not need to have those in your collection <laughs> to be considered a, a watch collector. Um, both of those, I think the Speedmaster may be the single most overrated watch I've ever owned. Oh, really? Hot there take, hot Spike. take time, dude, stealing your... Uh... <laughs> I see hot take. Um, yeah, I completely agree with you. I think there is that divide between... Um, and you're actually touching on something I'll, I'll bring up in my next one again. It's funny, you're right. We, <laughs> we sort of look at the same things, but often express them differently. Yeah. Um, and, and what I would say here is you're absolutely right. There are that kind of paint by numbers there's a the i actually i put it recent put it another way recently there's a difference between a collection of good watches and a watch collection mm -hmm. and i think a lot of people don't make that divide so someone like oshinri says you have to own this you have to own this you have to own this those are all good watches those are excellent watches and i wouldn't argue that they're great examples of their type the 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 Speedmaster is a great example of that sort of mid-century um, toolish chronograph. The the Submariner is a great example of that mid-century um, dive watch. That, and so, if you've got all of those, you have a great, you have a really good collection of great watches. But I don't think you have a very good watch collection, yeah. Because as a collection. It's just a paint-by-numbers. You're the same as everybody else. Your collection can be someone else's collection. There's no surprise. There's no risk. There's no delight. And there's none of you in it. Um, and so I think, you know, in a way, that's where I I would, you know what, I'll, I'll, I'll put a line through mine and say, I think you've kind of said the same thing. Um, there's these people for whom collections are very personal and it's very much about me and where I'm going. And then these other people where it's, it's all about the watches and there are good watches and there are bad watches. And if your collection doesn't have this list of good watches that by the way, I've unilaterally decided, yeah, then you have a terrible collection and you're not a good watch collector. I, I may yeah, contradict myself here a little bit and say, I think those watches were important at the time to make me realize that's not the direction I want to go in. <laughs> uh, the icons necessarily, they want to seek out some different stuff, but maybe owning them for a while and realizing they're not all that in a bag of chips for me. They're awesome. The, the Submariner I stand by is still probably the best watch I've owned, including the Moser. It's just, it's really just a, a fantastic dive watch, but it left me kind of cold after the honeymoon wore off. <laughs> yeah. That's that idea of a watch leaving you cold yeah. is is an interesting idea, um, and it kind of feeds into what I'll put up now as my next oh, um, divide. And it's kind of it's kind of on that point. Um, I think there's a divide, and it was rammed home to me today by a watchfinder video um, by Andrew Morgan, where he's talking about the new Tudor uh, Black Bay Fifty Four, mm. and it just smashed home to me this this idea of this divide and there's the divide between people that see watches as a kind of consumer product where the whole point of the watch is to be what you, the consumer want it to be. It's got to be perfect for you versus 
the idea of the watch as some kind of artistic expression of the designer where the designer has to put themselves into the watch and not necessarily give me what I wanted because I'm just the buyer of it. It's got to be an expression of them as well. This, so the divide is between those people who want the watch to, to be solely a consumer item, just meeting their specs, versus those people who want the watch to maybe be something they would never have asked for, but it's what the designer thought would be good. And as a result, you kind of fall in love with it like a piece of art. Um, on the Tudor 54, the video that um, Andrew Morgan did this morning, he actually talks about expressly that, where he says, Tudor and Rolex do not approach watches as pieces of art. They are, they are focus group driven, um, <laughs> mindless, kitten-eating lizard people, <laughs> you know, sort of soulless automatons just feeding back to you what the market research said that you wanted. Yep. Um, and that's what makes them – and then from his view, he said, that's what makes them great. And my comment was, that is why I'm never buying one. <laughs> that is why every time I've held a Rolex or a Tudor, I can admire it. I can find it sort of admirable, but it's it's dead. It's cold. It has nothing in it. They um, are rock-solid watches, nothing more, nothing less. Yeah. yeah. It's it's <laughs> it says it says so much about the brand that the guy that didn't create the brand, um sorry, the guy that created the brand wasn't a watchmaker. If you know if something had been ever so slightly different, you know, Rolex would be making horseshoe parts or something. <laughs> you know, if, if Hans Wilsdorf could have made the same money selling something selling something else, he would have sold something else. Um and yeah, in terms of the name. It means nothing. It means nothing to him or anyone else. It's easy to say. It's easy to remember. It looks good on a dial. Um, yep. But it's yep. there's nothing in it. It is hollow. Um, and that's there are people who love the brand for that. Um, I'm not one of them. <laughs> for me, a watch must be um, an expression of its creator. Um, I want I want them to create a watch that's better than I would ever have imagined it. They would have given me things I didn't even know I wanted. Maybe they presented me something I thought I didn't want, but when I saw it and I had it, I could see, hey, you know this better than I do. <laughs> yeah, you know, this is something I want. We talked um, about brand history and heritage. The thing that really interests me about Rolex and one of the reasons I own one is the the marketing and how they have, it's just become a part of pop culture and synonymous with success and wealth. Mm. You've, you've been at your job for 30 years, so you get a gold Rolex or whatever it might be, your retirement watch. And they are not the best watches out there. You and I know that by a, by a mile. But in the public conscious, they are. They're the, yeah, yeah they, they are like the epitome of wealth and success. And for them to position themselves in that is something to be respected, I think. It's taken a long time, and that's something I can really – I don't know if I can get behind it, but damn, I give them props. <laughs> I, I, I've i got little time for Rolex as a watchmaker because I think there's no art in what they do. Yep. But as a business, they are 
fascinating. Yeah. Um, you know, behind me, I've got a, a bookcase with a whole bunch of watch books. Um, and despite the fact I'm not particularly interested in Rolex, I've actually got like four Rolex <laughs> books, but none of them are about the watches. Um, they're all about the history of the Rolex business. Yeah. How did they market themselves? How did they create themselves? How did they, you know, um, buy out all their suppliers and and consolidate themselves? For me, that's the only really interesting part of Rolex, the business side. As a watch collector, not that interested. As a potential MBA subject, fascinating company. That's why the only Rolex I have is probably the weirdest one, the Air King, uh, you know, based on a dials from a supercar that never quite got off the ground. And not only did they, they doubled down on the weirdness when everybody thought they were going to discontinue it because it didn't really sell all that well, they... <laughs> they made it they made a weird watch like better in a way and that actually drew me to it because like it makes no sense for them to stick with that dial and that watch in general you know but they do and they doubled down on it and upgraded it so i kind of like that it's funny to me it is, a, it is <laughs> the the yeah king is a weird watch yeah it's, it is funny it's i've got i've got the notes for a review of that watch in in the making because I, I i borrowed a friend yeah so i use that as the basis of a of, and I describe it as Rolex's most honest watch. Um, and the reason I say that is because every other Rolex pretends it's still a tool. You know, if you read the the marketing blurb, it says, you know, it pretends it's still being used by professional divers or whatever, when in truth, that all stopped ages ago. But for the the marketing blurb of the, the Air King, they openly say, this is a homage to a pilot's watch. And I go... You nailed it. Interesting. It's a homage to a pilot's watch based on an instrument from a car dashboard, but we'll put that to one side. That's why I love it. It makes no sense. I love that. It's, it is very weird. Yeah. And, and the fact that they, that obviously invested a huge amount of money in the project, but then the whole bloodhound thing fell over, yeah. but you know, we've, we've spent all this money. What are we <laughs> Uh, um, yeah, because I, I think I saw you post that watch on Instagram quite a while ago, and I've been kind of yeah. half waiting for your review, because uh, I remember you saying in that post, like, I have thoughts, and I was like, oh boy, he's going to roast it, but yeah, I've been no, waiting. I, I don't, I, yeah, my thoughts are that it's it's an incredibly, it's, it's actually a surprisingly honest watch. I kind of like it, <laughs> um, but I, it is, it is. Yeah, the whole Rolex thing is very fascinating to me. Um, Rolex buyers are interesting. Yeah, there's people who, and there's a whole, um, and it'll kind of actually go into what I'm talking about here next. I see this battle online a lot. Actual watch snobs versus reverse watch snobs. And I actually find the reverse watch snobs who accuse people with nicer watches of flexing or they'll, they'll take shots at people with nice watches uh, I find that a lot more prevalent than actual watch snobs looking down on a less expensive watch. I don't know if you find that. Um, I think so. I think I think you're right. I don't think it's – what I would say is I'm not sure if it's necessarily more common. I One, totally agree with your division between reverse snobbery and snobbery. <laughs> yeah. Um, secondly um, – I think there is, I think if you like, we'll call it intellectual snobbery perhaps or, or reverse snobbery is seen as 
kind of punching up. It's seen as a little bit more democratic. So yeah. I don't think it would – I think people are more willing to indulge in it. Um, it is – there are very – there are some forums, though, where the opposite is absolutely right. Oh, yeah. Um, you know, where uh, you only buy an Omega because you're too poor to buy a Rolex. Okay. I mean, that comment is why I will never own a Rolex. Okay. <laughs> I'm not on the, I'm not on the forums at all, so I, I guess I'm glad. Yeah. yeah, so I go on the forums again purely from a business. I'll call it a business thing. Um, you know, it's it's those guys that you know give Rolex its bad name. Yeah, um, totally. Um, so in their forums, it's kind of like I think inside replica forums. Inside replica forums, people are prepared to say things that they'll never say outside. Right. Um, Inside a Rolex forum, they're prepared to say things that they, you know, they won't say in polite company. Um, but so out there in the in the wide general community, absolutely agree. There is that divide. Um, it's really, it's a very tricky thing to, and I there's a I, I almost feel sorry for people that genuinely, deeply, passionately love something that is insanely popular. Yeah. <laughs> because it's really hard. It, it's inevitable that people are going to look at you and go, you're just following the hurt. It is. Yep. You're flexing. <laughs> you're, or you're just flexing. Or it, it's inevitably going to happen. And and you can never surprise anyone because everyone knows about your watch. Yep. You can never delight anyone because everyone knows everything that there is to know about your watch. Um, it happens, it happens. Uh, I was at a red bar thing a couple of months ago and I'm sitting at a table of six people and I'm the only one not wearing a, a Rolex. Uh, and I was the only one wearing a watch anyone wanted to know about. Right. Because everyone knows everything there is to know about every Rolex ever made. Yeah. Um, there's no conversation to be had. There's no discoveries to be made. Um, it's, they're great watches, but trying trying to convince someone that you've somehow you know you have this unique relationship with it is really tricky i we had a party a few weeks ago and i was wearing my moser my uh neighbor who i i think i've talked about he has an omega seamaster he's casually into watches but uh, he knows i have a rolex and i showed him the moser and uh, he couldn't believe that it's so much more expensive than a rolex and thought more highly of than rolex and uh, yeah, it's just again back to that marketing thing too. It's like, man, they've just got oh, it yeah. in everybody's mind that they are the El Supremo watch brand, and uh, you know nothing can be better or more expensive. And uh, people are legitimately surprised when now to to people who have money, they're like entry level luxury. <laughs> Not to me, yeah, but to many. Oh, absolutely. I think that. Um, uh, I mean, if we if we agree, if we. T- even put any credence at all into like that Morgan Stanley review that comes yep. out every year where they do like how much brands are worth and everything like that. Then I think they're saying that uh, Rolex's turnover is eight to nine billion Swiss francs a year yeah. ballpark. Um, and the next one down, you're getting into like around about twos, two and a bit when Crazy. you get down to Cartier and Omega yep. and stuff like that. So it's in that ballpark. And then you very quickly go – before you get out of the top ten, you're down to less than a billion dollars. It's also widely rumored that 
Rolex spends potentially up to 40% of turnover. So what's that? That would be 3.2 billion francs a year on nothing but marketing. <laughs> yeah. So think about that. They spend they probably spend more on marketing than the next 10 brands combined. Um they spend more on marketing than the entire net worth of probably the next two brands combined. Um, it's it's no surprise that they are such a behemoth in our minds. Do you subscribe to Watches TV, that YouTube channel? Yes. Yeah, I don't know if you saw the co-author of the Morgan Stanley Report. It was like an hour and 40 minute long yeah. interview, but that was fascinating. I think he said in there that uh, Rolex and Tudor outsell all 17 swatch brands combined which is just crazy which is really fascinating and that's what he's just done is something maybe this is this is another divide thing or maybe it's a topic for another story which is really fascinating because according to his own reports tudor is a minor player yeah and in fact worse tudor has stalled tudor um like rocketed for years right that's been number 15 for three years yeah. straight now, and nothing much is changing. It's not selling a lot more watches, and the watches that it's selling isn't, aren't going up in price much more. And, yeah, so Tudor is an interesting beast. It's, I did um, – I, I was curious about what – I'm putting together a, a, a video looking at the disparity between where people sit on that, that list – and how much coverage they get. Um, That's really good. And it's and it's fascinating how Tudor, sitting in the doldrums at around about 15%, um, not growing significantly, gets more coverage than on one on one for on one publication I went to, than the 13 brands above it combined. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um which makes me think, and the only one that's missing is Rolex, um, which makes me think a lot of Rolex marketing money is paying for a lot of unannounced but sponsored content on Tudor watches. Yeah. I, I cannot find any other way of explaining it than magazines and YouTube channels are being financially rewarded for doing three and four articles on the new Black Bay 54 um, because the sales don't line up with the amount of coverage it's getting. And that's the only way I can figure out that disparity. That was actually, I don't even know whose turn it is anymore, but uh, that that was uh, one of the last, one of my reserve uh, topics for today, but I think I'll go with it. Maybe it's a divide between YouTubers and viewers, but do you think YouTubers should be, the paid promotion tab comes up, right? But they don't disclose what that means. Do you think they should be required to, or do you think, I know I would, I would disclose, is it a free watch? Did I get paid? Did I get compensated? Am I getting a cut of the sales I generate from this video? I think it's important because if like there's a micro brand who, uh, Elizabeth Grant, I don't know if you watch her. She did a video where uh, there was a certain micro brand who will offer to cut you in on the uh, 
a percentage of the sales you generate. And I think as a viewer, I kind of want to know that because that means if you're getting a cut, you're less likely to say something negative. Now, I take all reviews with a grain of salt anyway, but many people maybe don't. And when you're looking to fork over up to $1,000 on a watch, like we go to YouTube just to, to see what people who are reviewing them, who we think are being objective, are, you know, what they have to say about the watch. And I think that should be disclosed. And maybe that's just a divide between me and some YouTubers. <laughs> no, I think, I think um, first off, as a YouTuber, I've done, I think, one sponsored video very, very, very long time ago. Someone, uh, a, a little Australian microbrand gave me a watch, and I think that was the one I did. And I, I yeah. just said, frankly, I would. I would. And I did. I said, they gave me the watch. What did I get out of it? Nothing at all. I don't particularly like the watch, but it's still in a watch box because, <laughs> oh, actually, that's not true. I do kind of like it. But I would never wear it, but I keep it as a memento as the first watch anyone ever That's gave a really me cool a feeling. YouTuber. That's like, uh, yeah, it's like, oh, wow. Yeah. A brand thought enough to so, give me a watch. <laughs> it's pretty and cool. And I felt, I felt awkward about it that I've never gone back and repeated it and I've knocked <laughs> yeah. back every other YouTube, everyone else that's done it. I would do it for another reason, which is um, you have to put that banner up no matter where the money came from. Yep. So if you're – like there's a YouTube channel I watch where they talk about sailing and sailing products, but their sponsorship is actually a VPN. Okay. <laughs> um, yep. So it's, they run an ad in the middle for a, for a VPN. Yeah. But because it's got that ad, it has to have the, the sponsor thing. Yep. So they have to say, we have to tell you this is sponsored content. The sponsored content is the very obvious ad for a product unrelated <laughs> right. to what we're talking about. Um, so, yeah. I think it would be good if YouTubers did that. But you know what? I'm going to go the other way okay. and say whilst it would be great if YouTubers were more open about what they're being paid for, I don't think they're the real problem. If you are going to um, – we're, we're totally off the topic here, but you yeah. know what I would That's probably right. say <laughs> is I think that YouTube – at least enforces some kind of notification that you are being paid to say what you were saying. But if you go outside of YouTube to, and I'm not necessarily accusing any one of these sites, but I just have to name some so that you know what I'm talking about. If you go to Monochrome, Fratello, Revolution, Hadinki, Worn and Wound, you go to their website, they have no legal obligation under any circumstances to tell you whether they are or are not being paid to run that ad. Yep. Um, be, sorry, being paid to run that um, article. Were they given $5,000 to do a week on the wrist? I don't know. Maybe they were, maybe they weren't. Were they, you know, brought over to... Um, where they brought over to uh, Tudor and walked through a factory on the basis, on the understanding that you'll do an article about the factory tour, you'll do a release of the 54, you'll do an article on each of the watches that we showed you um, and that sort of thing. None of that is disclosed. There's no requirement to. And this goes back to my argument about saying, I'm pretty comfortable with the idea that in one way or another, Tudor has bought a level of um, coverage far in excess of what their status in the marketplace would would indicate. 
Um, and and it's funny you were saying you know, sort of take the reviews as a grain of salt with a with a grain of salt, and you know you you form your own opinion, and that's probably true. Each of us, all of us, try to, but as humans, you can't help but be influenced by when you open up your RSS feed to what's going on and you see 17 articles about the new Tudor 54. Yeah. Um, it, it almost doesn't matter what they say. It's just that it's there. Yeah. You're just um, inundated with the message and uh, with the watch. And yeah, you just, uh, yeah, uh, yeah I get it. I, th- I suspect Oris does a lot of that paying because that that interview with ben clymer i don't know that they put the you know that that banner up that saying it was a it was an ad but it was clearly an ad for that pro pilot x that whole interview was it was an ad for that watch and i i'm sure oris uh you know got the rights from disney to use kermit and footed the bill for the entire thing they didn't explicitly say that and that's where the tricky thing if you can read between the lines clearly an ad (laughs) yeah yeah and 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 that's where it gets tricky. Um, that wasn't was that on YouTube or just via the it was on YouTube. site? Yeah, yeah. It was on so that YouTube would would impose some kind of requirement yeah. on that. Um, but yeah, if it's if it's not on YouTube, if it's just a podcast or if it's um, uh, just one of the articles, there's no requirement for them to say anything. I um, think if I ever got some... to the point where I could monetize my podcast, I would do like the Whiskey and Watches podcast. They do like Manscaped ads. That's what I would do. Something completely unrelated to watches. I did have someone reach out to me and, and say they wanted to do an ad, but it was for um, asking if they could run an ad over one of my YouTube videos. But it was for um, vitamin supplements for older men. And I decided I probably just didn't feel comfortable doing that. Thank you very much, but no thanks. <laughs> no, I mean, Formex just gave me a loner and I was conflicted. And uh, ultimately, it was like really stress-free. And he's, you know, he had no problem with me saying anything negative or one positive. Of the, one, of the things, one of the things I found with that circumstance is you just don't – you chat. It's got nothing to do with whether they paid you. You just know these people. You like them, and you don't yeah. want to say bad things about their product. Right. Um, one of the things I and this is actually one of the reasons why I've sort of been struggling with how do you even do a review. Um, and I've spoken to some people who are professional reviewers. You know, this is what they do for a living. Um, and their advice was, which I'm trying to take into account, it's not about you. Um, YouTubers, it's weird. There's this whole authenticity thing. It's got to be about me and my genuine reaction to the watches. And the professional reviewers are going, that's just rubbish. That's amateur bullshit. Yeah. Um, it's actually, in when you're reviewing a product, it's how well does that thing, A, satisfy what the designer said it was going to be. If I said this was going to be a homage to a pilot's watch, does it come across as a homage to a pilot's watch? Or does it look like something? Does it look nothing like that? And you can't see what they're trying to tell you. That's a fail. Um, If they've said it's for a particular kind of person, is that kind of person likely to like this watch? I've said that this is a professional dive watch for people that do all sorts of exciting things. Is this watch likely to be acceptable for that person? That's how you review the watch. Interesting. Whether you like it or not is kind of beside the point. Interesting. Um, and that's what I've been trying to think about. You know, that's how I, 
I haven't done any watch reviews because I've been struggling to think about how I would do that. Um, but yeah, I think that's how you should do, review a watch. It doesn't, I'd probably put a last little bit on the end of, oh, by the way, I can't stand this watch. Or, <laughs> oh, by the way, I love this watch. But it's not for me. Right. You know, um, and, and where the guys were coming from is like when, when you're a professional and you don't get to, you just have to review the thing in front of you. You know, you might never, you might be never, ever going to wear, you know, a bedazzled Bulgari, you know, um, Serpenti. Yeah. But that's beside the point. It's your job to say whether it's a good product or not. Not not your job to say whether you like it. Um, yeah, interesting. And I, I find that's a really interesting way to review a watch. And I've found myself now thinking about watches that way. You know what my favorite watch reviews are? Actually, uh, some of the channels that do like uh, Garmin smartwatch and fitness watch reviews, like uh, DC Rainmaker and Fit. Like, because there's none of this, like, you know, uh, some of the stuff the watch YouTubers do, it's all just functional based. You know, there's no storytelling or it makes me feel this way or anything like that. It's like, no, we tested the metrics say this, 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 and this, we put it through these rigorous tests. Um, I, I really like that. It resonates with me because that's how I'm going to use the watch. So with, with an actual like wristwatch with a mechanical watch, um, we all kind of wear them and use them for different reasons. <laughs> so it's not as cut and dry. That's exactly right. I yeah. think a lot of people do review watches as if they were smartwatches. Yeah. Um, and you're right. My smartwatch may as well, you know, I, I buy a Garmin in the same way as I buy a toaster or a vacuum right, cleaner. Same. Um, I just want specs. I want it to wear okay. And I want it to be as cheap as I can possibly get it. Yep. And Garmin just consistently time after time. And for fitness stuff, there's all this other stuff like do the apps work and is the heart, can I rely upon the heart rate and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. Um, so there's an example where accuracy actually matters, <laughs> but on, on a wristwatch, it's just jewelry. Yeah. Um, so I don't care about any of that stuff. Well, we went way off topic. I think you may actually have one more if you want to do it. <laughs> okay. Okay. You know what? I'll do that last one. Okay. Good. There are those, the big divide is between those people who know and accept that their watches are jewelry. And those people who pretend they're still tall, tools. Okay. Uh, <laughs> um, and you'll notice the barb in there. I don't provide an outcome for, for <laughs> a wristwatch to actually be a tool. Um, that's unfair. I think there is the odd person who is always wearing quartz um, and probably a G-Shock where their watch is actually a tool. But yeah. for everyone else, it's just jewelry, whether you want to admit it or not. And I think the divide is between those people who will admit it and accept it and own it and those people who can't and will continue to pretend it's a tool. Uh, I, well, I mean, I, gosh, with my job, I definitely use my G-Shocks and my Garmin's and I'll switch it up. Sometimes I'll wear like my Samurai. Uh, I will use the dive bezel to time a half an hour dog run. I'll use the stopwatch and timer functions on G-Shocks. I'll use this because on the Garmin, I can actually, you know, you can time the, you can do the run on GPS and then I can take a picture of the dog and within the app, I can send a picture of the dog and the route we ran mm. to the owners and they love that. So that's an actual like tool that I use it for. Oh yeah, and that's why I put 
I'll put smartwatches. I don't even call smartwatches watches. Yeah. I'll put them in a completely different category. They are genuine tools. But this Moser, um, when I get home from work, total man jewelry, 100%. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> you know, how accurate is your, you know, does your, does your day live and die by the fact that your Rolex is plus or minus two seconds a day? No. No one would even notice. Right. Um, if you if you set your watch at the you know, beginning of the day, two minutes out, I suspect at the end of the day, no one outside of you would know. Right. And I think that's that's kind of my test of a of a tool. My 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 feeling is because people don't want to acknowledge that their watches are luxuries, they pretend they're tools. They come up with stories in their head. But my 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 test for whether a watch is actually a tool is what in the legal space they call an objective test. It's not about you. Instead, you ask yourself the question, a tool is something that you would buy for one of your employees to keep. You would buy it with your money and then you would give it to your gardener so that he could use it and he could keep it. Yeah. If, if, you, if, if you're willing to do that, it's a tool. In which case, we pretty much all top out at a Casio, you know, FW91. Right. Anything above 15 bucks is jewelry. I got into a, well, I didn't get into an argument. It was actually a quite a friendly discussion about the, the Speedmaster. I said it is a dress watch parading around as a tool watch because it looks like a tool watch, but it really has like dress watch specs if you really think about it. Uh, the water resistance and all that. And um, he's like, well, it was purpose built for this and I, I i didn't say this but i wanted to say well if i ever go to outer space i'll grab the Speedmaster. <laughs> but for any other life thing i'm probably going to grab a different watch i'm also not a chronograph guy so i don't mean to pick on the Speedmaster. it's just not one of my favorite styles of watch yeah. but you could say exactly the same thing about the navitimer it's got essentially the same features right um and i think there you would say it is a tool watch but or i'll, I'll say it was once a tool watch yeah um for a very specific um, use case, um, today it's jewelry. Yeah. Um, well, you can picture a pilot wearing a, a Navitimer. Like to me, yeah. I mean, Speedmaster. You know, it, its story of going to the moon and everything is not applicable in day to day life for most people. But you can imagine a pilot still wearing a. Uh, a Navitimer and using the, well, before there were onboard computers and everything, they used the, uh, the slide rule and all that. So definitely a tool so, to watch. Certainly once upon a time it was these days, if yeah. they're wearing a Breitling at all, it's an aerospace. Yeah. Um, and if they're wearing a watch at all, it's probably an Apple or a Garmin, which in turn talks to the actual instruments on right, their, uh, right. their, their, um, their airplane. But pilots so, are still trained on those, and I forget what it's called, but the the slide rule is actually, like, it has a name, and it is called, like, a computer, and they actually do have, like, a printout of it. And you are trained how to read one of those in case your instruments fail. I actually talked to a – I did an episode, like, right when I started the podcast. I have a friend in a running group who is a pilot, and I asked him what watch he wears, and he said Apple Watch, of course. But – uh yeah. Um, yeah, it was it was pretty cool, and I can't remember the name of that what they call that tool. It's essentially a slide rule, but you have a like a paper printout of it, and you 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 should know how to read one of those just in case you're. And this is for a smaller craft, obviously. The yeah, commercial airline. It's funny because if 
Yeah, well, if you're learning to fly in the Royal Australian Air Force, your first aeroplane will be a glass cockpitted PC-21. Oh, man. Um, and you'll have an electronic flight bag for your first flight. <laughs> wow. So, which is basically just a, a pad. Um, yeah, these guys can – you could theoretically fly your entire career, Air Force career and never actually have paper in the cockpit. Wow. Well, we went off on some tangents, but I think it was a – it's always wonderful to talk to you. I love getting your uh, – opinion on everything and uh, we didn't disagree too much actually it was pretty uh i thought we might disagree a little bit more one of my other uh reserve uh topics i think we probably would have but uh that's okay what we'll was that one it was just it wasn't anything major it was uh importance on uh factory bracelets and straps and i know you oh, that doesn't matter all. to you at all <laughs> it's not even a watch part i want the option to be able to comfortably wear the bracelet that comes with a watch. That's like my beef about some watch bracelets that there's just no like thought put into them. Like, so my friend has a Zenith Chronomaster, my local friend, John, he, mm. we met in the parking lot on a beautiful sunny day. And that watch, it was like, whoa, just shiny, beautiful. And then the bracelet is something you would find on like a Casio edifice. Like just, just doesn't do the wash head justice. And I don't know. I just, I think they could do better. That just, that's what bothers me. Yeah, I'm actually whole topic for another day, but <laughs> right. I think I think I, I'm not a bracelet guy. Yeah. So and and even then, I, I don't understand this whole swelling and on the fly thing. I do <laughs> have a couple of watches with like on the fly adjustment that I never ever use. What what's going on with you people that you <laughs> a lot seem of, to too much salt in our diets? Too much salt in our diets. <laughs> Yeah, I, I don't get it. I, I I don't understand how that happens. It happens to be a lot. It uh, I definitely like. Um, I wore my Air King yesterday. It was a warmer day, and it, it fit me well. Uh, and then I was out putzing around in the. It was like eighty degrees, and it was very tight. I had to do the. Uh, I had to open it up a little bit. So yeah, I don't know yeah, if it's my, a combination of humidity, salt. Yeah, my Brightwing Super Ocean's got one of those on the fly things, um, and. I had to, well, I didn't have to use it. I was worried that it had got stuck in place over the seven months I've owned the watch because I've never used it. <laughs> um, and it took me a while to go, because it's just been like now locked in place for so long. And I thought, oh, maybe I'll start using it now that I've worked out how to. Nah, still not doing it. <laughs> You're lucky because uh, that's one of the reasons like Grand Seiko just doesn't, doesn't always work for me. I get mad that the bracelet doesn't work for me and I can put it on other straps, but... We're, you know, we're all petty in some ways. And I just like that sticks in my craw, like darn these bracelets yeah. with these half links, whatever kind of, there's even like charts to get the proper fit with all these like equations for half links and stuff. I followed that can never get it a hundred percent. Right. It's always either like loose. I hate loose watches. Maybe that's it. Maybe, maybe it's just, I don't wear my watches that tight. Yeah. Except for my smartwatch, which has got to be really tight for the oh, yeah. um, heart rate to work. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, before I let you go, plug your channel, plug your podcast, please. So it's so it's. Uh, we'll start with the podcast. It's Hot Take Time. Um, at the moment, we're pretty much only available on Spotify and Google, but but I think that will cover ninety five percent of people, yeah. according to the analytics. Um, my YouTube channel is just Pete McConville, just my name. 
and my Instagram is just one extra word. So it's just Pete McConville watches. Uh, there's dots in there somewhere. <laughs> I'll put it. links to all of the stuff, the podcast. The podcast is fantastic. Uh, your friend John, is uh, he's a lot like me, I think. He'll uh, impulsively buy and flip uh, to buy yeah. the next one. Like, yeah, you're you're a little more thoughtful than both of us. But yeah, his, uh, his style is definitely a little closer to mine. <laughs> yeah. Cool. Which is great. I get to I get to experience watches I'll never buy, but he will. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's a smart way to do it. Let somebody else uh, take the fall and pay the flipper tax and all that. Well, thank you so much, and I'm glad you could finally join. And that's all my fault, <laughs> by the way. But uh, yeah, thank you for. Uh, I know we went a little long here. Thank you so much for uh, spending the beginning of your weekend with me. I appreciate it very much. Okay, thank you very much. See you later. And uh, remember, sometimes you're the dog. Sometimes you're the hydrant, but at least you're outside. We'll catch you on the next episode of the Watchdog Podcast. See you later.